O Holy One, may the words I speak be the words you wish spoken. May the words that are heard be the words you wish heard. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. When you look back on your life, do you look back at some decisions and find yourself saying, what was I thinking? I have many of these stories, and my grandchildren love hearing them. I'll share one. I'll also invite you to share a few later with your friends or family. When I was 16, I was given an almost new car to drive for four to five months, a 1961 Chevy with a 348-inch engine and a four-barrel carburetor. My father had purchased a new car while the lease on this car still had five months on it, and boy did my stock as a teenager go up. I had a whole group of friends that I could pick up and drive to school, and weekends we cruised and found empty roads for drag racing. That car was a little worn out and tired by the end of the five months. And one morning when I went to start the car, the battery was dead and it wouldn't start. It was parked in the carport which was at the bottom end of a rather steep driveway. And it was early morning and my friends were waiting. And rather than wake up my parents, I decided to get the keys for my dad's new car and attach my car to it with tire chains and pull it up the steep driveway and onto the road so I could jumpstart it on the hill beside our house. There was no one in the towed car. I pulled it halfway up the driveway, and the chain broke. Needless to say, I woke up my parents as the car flew down the driveway, through the carpet, or carport, and through the outside wall of the house. It didn't take long for me to say, what the blank was I thinking? And what I wanted overwhelmed my capacity to think clearly. I know the word stupid is somewhat politically and socially inappropriate these days, my grandchildren told me, especially if it is used in judging others. However, occasionally I find the word helpful when used in hindsight about all of us as humans or when used in hindsight about myself, and I'm not the only one. Albert Einstein said, two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity, and I'm not sure about the universe. George Carlin said, never underestimate the power of stupid people in large groups. And even Napoleon Bonaparte said, in politics, stupidity is not a handicap. P.G. Woodenhouse said, he had just enough intelligence to open his mouth when he wanted to eat, but certainly no more. And the one we all know from Forrest Gump, stupid is as stupid does. And so I think with honest reflection and hindsight, we often ask, what was I thinking? Or what were we thinking? And often we ask these questions after what Thomas Kuhn, the philosopher, calls a paradigm shift. A paradigm is a set of beliefs, images, concepts, and structures that govern the way we think, the way we think about anything, 
And he said that paradigm changes have become necessary when the old paradigm, the old ways of thinking, become so full of holes and patchwork fixes that a complete overhaul is necessary. And we find ourselves looking back and saying, what were we thinking? And as Chris so clearly stated last week, it is so easy for us to see the evil that is out there, the devil, and become blind to the evil that might be in our own hearts. And all of written history is a description of these systemic and successive paradigm shifts. We look back and we say, what were we as humans thinking? As Christians, what were we thinking? The Crusades, slavery, missionary colonialism, Nazi fascism. And in our recent generations, we have seen a number. The 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. This pandemic infected 500 million people with estimates of the number of deaths as somewhere between 50 and 100 million. And it actually started in the U.S., but was hidden there until it broke out in Spain and became falsely known as the Spanish flu. We had the Great Depression. Our looking back at residential schools, which seemed so right at the time, and even something like September the 11th, brought paradigm shifts. And each one of these tempted us to see an enemy out there, blinding us to any enemy that might be within. And now currently COVID-19 and more recently the attack on the American capital are both crises that are still defining the shifts, the new paradigms that we might or that might emerge. Seeking to define how we react to these crises, Brian McLaren, a former English teacher and now a pastor and leader in what is called the Emerging Church Movement, used the language of a framing story to describe our paradigms. I like that. It's a little more accessible. Brian says a framing story gives people direction, values, vision, and inspiration by providing a framework on which to build their lives. It tells them who they are, where they come from, where they are, what's going on, and where things are going, and what they should do. These framing stories answer these questions on a personal level, but also dictate the general beliefs of a culture, a nation, a religion, or even humanity as a whole. And he looks back on human history, and then he looks at our current crisis of COVID, and now perhaps the storming of the U.S. Capitol, and says, our growing list of global crises, together with our inability to address them effectively, gives us strong evidence that our world's dominant framing story is failing. And so he reflects on three possible framing stories. There may be more. First of all, he says, if our framing story tells us that the purpose of life is primarily economic, that is for individuals or nations to accumulate an abundance of possessions and to experience the maximum amount of pleasure during the maximum number of minutes of our short lives, then we will have little reason to manage our consumption 
and our consumption will be often at others' expense. As Leonard Cohen so vividly says about Jesus, he died to make things holy. We die to make things cheap. Secondly, if our framing story tells us that we are in a life-and-death competition with each other, then we will have little reason to seek reconciliation and collaboration and nonviolent resolutions to our conflicts. We will become reactive or oppositional instead of patiently proactive. How many of our protests are framed in the demands, what do we want? When do we want it? Now! And thirdly, he says, but if our framing story tells us that we are free, responsible creatures in a creation made by a good, wise, and loving God, and that our Creator wants us to pursue virtue, collaboration, peace, and mutual care for one another and all of living creatures, and I might add all of creation, and that our lives can be prof- have profound meaning if we align ourselves with divine wisdom, character, and dreams for us. Then, he says, our society will have taken a radically different direction and our world will become a very different place. As Christians, we have the opportunity to live the story, he says, that was given to us at the very beginning in Genesis, that creation is good, even very good, and that it is our vocation to nurture and grow that goodness wherever we can. I think we are at one of those critical junctures again, an invitation to a paradigm shift or a reminder of our God-given framing story. And I also sense that today's texts about calling are reminding us of our ultimate framing story, cautioning us to not be deceived into a different story or a mixture of that divine and our human stories. If If we mix our divine calling with an economic framework, we move towards a prosperity gospel that says... The sign of God's blessing is material prosperity, blended with our entitlement. If we mix our divine calling with a story of life and death competition, or with political polarization, with a battle between our sense of good and evil, we will be tempted to see evil out there, rather than both out there and in here, causing us to use violence to combat violence. Destroying the destroyers makes us the new destroyers. And so here is my main invitation this morning. Honor the baptism vows of self-confrontation that Chris highlighted last week. Look in your own heart before you look for the evil out there. That self-confrontation can be a hard gift to receive. But it is made easier if you know that you are loved unconditionally. And in our text, or because of our text, honor your ultimate calling. It carries the framing story that allows you to see both the good and evil out there and see the good and evil possibilities in your own heart. 
And so what is this calling? What was it for Samuel? What was it for the disciples? What was it for Jesus? And what is it for us? I suspect the answer is too big for words, but we must try. My favorite description of this ultimate framing story comes from Agnes Sanford. For her, our ultimate calling, our framing story, is to focus on our individual unique way and our collective unique way of both giving and receiving love. Giving and receiving love. So simple. Just not easy. Samuel thinks he's hearing a human voice of Eli. But actually, with a little support, he hears that it's a divine voice. And that's our challenge and invitation as well. Midst all the human voices that are blindly calling out to us, can we see the divine voice that is our ultimate calling, our framing story, our way of giving and receiving love, our way of even loving our enemies, our hearts and minds, so easily get rubbled over. And when we lose sight of this framing story, we become afraid and urgent, and we react. And when we do our framing story, our baptismal vows, our calling can invite us instead to look inward first. This is the paramount message in our psalm this morning, to find our center. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You are acquainted with all my ways with all my human and divine tendencies, even before a word is on my tongue. For it was you who formed my inward parts. This calling is knit into us before we are born. It is our given way of giving and receiving love. This gives us the capacity to be an engaged but non-anxious presence in this world. And if we find ourselves oppositional, We will be engaged but anxious, urgent, willing to abandon love for violence. But if we find God to be real, God will find us to be willing to love and let ourselves be loved. And this kind of non-anxious presence knows what it means to be in the world but not of the world, not overwhelmed with the urgencies of all the human voices both within and without. Instead, our doing will come from this inner sense of call, inviting an active patience in the divine unfolding of love. And so we live to be faithful rather than forcing our agenda that feels successful. I close with a prayer from Pierre Tellier de Chardin called Patient Trust. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. 
Your ideas matured gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time will make of you tomorrow. That is to say, grace and circumstances acting on your own good will. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. This is what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. Amen.